Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to have each of you with us today. This is going to be a really exciting podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with a couple of guys who have been on the podcast before. First, we'll start off with uh, with Chris. He's been on before doing a few interviews with uh, with me answering the questions. Chris, are you out there? I am. It's good to be with you again, Bill. Good, good. Glad to have you on. And also one of our listeners, Clay, is rejoining us to have uh, to join in the conversation and to, to add his wisdom to the things that we're talking about tonight. Clay, uh, how's things going? Going well. Thanks for having me. Awesome, awesome. So tonight, uh, for the listener, this is something that uh, the three of us have, have talked about over the last uh, week or so, something that we got into a conversation talking about and we thought we'd, would be interesting. There's there's a lot of people right now out in in Mormonism who are leaving the church, and they're leaving for a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons is the idea that the Book of Mormon is a fraud. And and the three of us hold very nuanced views within Mormonism, although we each have different perspectives. And we thought we'd come together tonight and talk about some of the fraudulent theories behind how the Book of Mormon uh, came into existence and just maybe kind of go back and forth with each other and see if there's any kind of real um, plausibility or reasonableness to some of those theories. And so, guys, uh, where do you think we should start off at tonight? Well, why don't we start back at the beginning with the witnesses? Let's do it. So, right, so the the idea would be that if if the witnesses are... Uh, corroborating with Joseph, and they're working together with him to create this. Wh- whether it's one of the witnesses, two of the witnesses, or all three of the of the primary three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, as each of them act as scribes in various parts. Uh, who do you guys want to start off with? Pick one of them. Uh, the strongest one, one that was probably the spent the longest time as a scribe, right, Oliver? Right, uh, Oliver Cowdery. So, uh, your thoughts, guys? Um, is Oliver? Is Oliver a cohort with Joseph in, in creating the Book of Mormon, or or what are some of your thoughts on some of the things that are going on there? Is he in on it? Is he is he just being fooled, or what? Well, man, I don't know. He uh, he attended the same congregation, or at least he lived in the same town as Ethan Smith, who wrote View of the Hebrews. So that's one of the critics, uh, a piece of evidence that the critics use, saying that Oliver Cowdery must have been in on it, or could have been in on it. Right. So one of the ideas is that Joseph is using View of the Hebrews, which we'll get to a little bit later, but this idea that Oliver is a very good connection between Ethan Smith in the book and and Joseph Smith, and so it gives some some room for Joseph to have access to kind of a, an inner knowledge of what's going on with the book and to have access to it. So let's just throw it out there. Let's just say Oliver's in on it. He, him, and Joseph are working together. Are there any things that you guys see as being um, problems with that? Something that would throw the wrench in that kind of an idea? Yeah, I. I, um, I mean, he's, he was with Joseph from the beginning, right? He was the first one baptized in the church. He was there when, uh, John the Baptist visited him, Peter, James, and John. I mean, he saw all these, these heavenly visitors. So if he was a conspirator in creating the Book of Mormon, then, uh, I mean, he would have had to keep the lie going for and, and continue the same lie and, and kind of conspire with Joseph to say, oh yeah, this heavenly visitor came and saw us on this date in this temple. Uh, he would have to have, uh, he would have to have been a very strong conspirator with Joseph. Right, right. And, and one of the things I think that throws a, a wrench in it is this idea of Fanny Elgar, right? So if, if Oliver Cowdery is in on the whole thing, him and Joseph have, you know, shaken hands and, and they are, they are plotted together to, to carry this fraud out on everybody, then it seems strange to me that Joseph's gonna get upset about Fanny Alger, that, or not Joseph, Oliver Cowdery's gonna get upset about Fanny Alger, that Oliver's going to, you know, essentially catch Joseph and, and Fanny in the barn making out, 
And as we know from Don Bradley and uh, Brian Hales, this idea that, that Oliver calls it a, a filthy, nasty scrape. And if Oliver is teamed up with Joseph, it, it would seem like he should have no problem with Fanny Oliver. He should have no problem. He would be like, hey, you know what? These guys are getting some action. I'm, this is all good. I'm in on this. But he doesn't do that. He throws a fit, right? He's upset. He doesn't, he, he thinks less of Joseph's character because this happens. It, it seems to fight really strongly against the idea that Oliver is, is, is a cohort with Joseph to carry out this fraud. Right. That would be the time yeah. he could jump in and say, all right, Joseph, you went too far with Fanny. Uh, I'm going to, you know, let the, let everyone know what big fraud that we, we conspired to do back in uh, 28, 29. Right, right. It would give him reason to speak up if he's bothered by polygamy or if he's in on it with Joseph and they've come up with the idea to let's do this together, then Oliver should be just as eager and ready to grab himself another woman if that's what this is all about. Exactly. Well, the historic record shows that they didn't meet until April 5th, 1829. So you'd have to go back further in time and say that they conspired, I don't know, a year or two previous to that. And it just doesn't bear that out. Although I believe Oliver Cowdery is relative to Joseph Senior, isn't he? Isn't he like a second or third cousin? Right. I think it's a second or third cousin, but but it almost seems like the critics like to throw that out. But the reality is very unlikely that they would have known that they were that closely related. Wasn't he also uh, married to uh, Whitmer's sister? I mean, it, right. It yeah, later on. Yeah, yeah, later on, but that's not that's not at the time. That's not until after he joins in and, and the Book of Mormon's published, and then all of a sudden he's marrying uh, okay. one of the Whitmer's girls. Gotcha. And he never practiced polygamy, right? No. Cowdery never joins in on the polygamous action. Hmm. i got to tell you guys, Oliver Cowdery is one of my favorite guys. I really sympathize with him as you read church history. He seems like a, a really earnest, uh, upstanding, good guy who slowly – um, kind of gets pushed out of the church, really, I don't think by a lot of fault of his own. Seemed kind of like he, maybe his feelings got hurt a little bit on how Sidney Rigdon was given so much airtime by Joseph. And, um, you know, he, uh, he sure, he sure didn't like that Fanny Alger stuff going on. Right. Um, and you make two good points, Chris, this idea that, that Oliver's stable. I mean, he goes through the rest of his life holding down jobs, being a prominent person within his community, serves as a lawyer for some time. When he meets the Smiths, he's a school teacher. Uh, it just seems like the guy's a stable person. And you also make the second point, which is that he's slowly kind of ostracized out of the church. He's excommunicated by the Quorum of the Twelve or the High Council uh, for some of the things that he's saying that Joseph's done. And this excommunication, this idea of being pushed out of the out of the fold would give him an ample opportunity to be like, you know what, that's it, guys. I was in on this from the beginning, and now you guys have left me on the outside. I'm going to rat you guys all out. And he doesn't do that. Yeah, and, he, and he's not really an opportunist, right? I mean, he goes into politics after the church for 10 years, and uh, he, you know, he doesn't kind of stay with the, the idea to pitch religion like some of the other guys. Right, he kind of just completely separates himself for a while, comes back to the church at the very end of his life, uh, but but certainly keeps his distance for, for the longest time. I think he was, what, in, in like Painesville uh, in Ohio? Um, is that correct, Chris? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. Hey, but, you know, Oliver's not in on it, guys. Let's move on. He's too good. I like Oliver. Oliver's not in on it. And, and I think, too, we should note that I don't think Oliver's duped on this as, either because, as Clay, you pointed out, this guy, we get a lot of our – testimony on each of the witnesses or not but on each of the spiritual experiences that happened in the church Peter James and John and John the Baptist and what happens in the Kirtland Temple a lot of these stories don't necessarily come from Joseph they come from Oliver Cowdery and so I don't think it's easy to say that Oliver was just dumb and duped either that that it goes beyond that that 
Oliver seems like a sincere person in the experiences that he's sharing, and he's sharing quite a bit. The only way that Oliver is a strong candidate to be a co-conspirator on this fraud is that he probably translated, or sorry, he was probably scribed for the majority of the book. Yeah, 80% of it or so. Right. I mean, he's a strong candidate to be up there, but, uh, you know, he's a stand-up guy also, it sounds like, in every other sense. So, Right. If Joseph is carrying out a fraud and there are other people in on it besides Joseph, Oliver really is the prime candidate. And yet nothing in his life seems to indicate that that's what's going on. Exactly. So you guys aren't ready to move on yet. You want to keep uh, dragging no. Oliver through the mud? No, you said you, let's keep, you my, said he was your favorite. He's my boy. Let's, let's, let's move on. There's better candidates out there. All right. Let's go to, let's go to Martin Harris, the mystic. Um, Martin Harris. So, so maybe Martin's in on it, right? Martin's actually there from the very start. So Martin's got to be in on it, right? Uh, is that what's going on? Well, let's talk about it. Um, kind of a halfwit, isn't he? Wasn't he kind of a halfwit? <laughs> he might not have been the sharpest guy in Palmyra, but I don't think he was a halfwit. I mean, he certainly had a few, few dollars. Is, yeah, it uh, seems like he had a pretty successful farming sure, business. Sure, you uh, need seemed... some money? Here we go. Here, what else are you going to invest in? <laughs> so, so Martin's, maybe Martin's the co-conspirator. He, he seems like... Uh, He's easy to kind of get to go along with things. Uh, what are some things maybe that are stopping Martin from from being an obvious ploy in the whole thing? Well, one of the things that uh, I like about Martin is when he takes the characters to Charles Anthon. Anthon later says that he told Martin Harris that it was um, a fraud and to you know stay away from it. But Martin Harris comes back even more convinced of the truthfulness of what Joseph and he were doing with the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I know that there's two uh, accounts where Charles Anthon is on on record uh, going to newspapers and and in the sort and sharing a story and and he kind of contradicts himself, but the places where his story holds up is around Martin Harris and the things that Martin Harris said and shared and and felt as uh, as he talked with Charles Anthon. Uh, it seems to indicate that that Martin was pretty forthright in his in his honesty to to go there and to try to figure out if somebody could translate these things. He but he also seems like the type of guy that fell for anything, right? He was probably the most superstitious out of all these guys we're going to be talking about. You tell him anything and, oh yeah, sounds great. And he'd go and he'd, he'd spin it in his own way and tell somebody else. And so I think he probably had that reputation from what I've read on the guy that he kind of had that reputation as the, the guy that's going to fall for something. So it's probably not as, I mean, being one of the three witnesses probably wasn't the, uh, the smartest move, but that's who needed to be there at that time. The smartest move. What are, you, what are you talking about? Um, like Joseph should have chosen another. What I mean is, um, um, he probably owed it. To <laughs> I, thought, I thought God selected the witnesses. Yeah, Clay. Well, Come on, man. <laughs> well, he owed it to Joseph. Owed it to Martin to call him as one of the witnesses, right? He had invested the money. He'd put up the money to, for the printing. Um, he probably had a lot of pressure to make him one of the witnesses. But at the same time, if you got a, a few buddies that are going to be part of a fraud with you, you don't want the one guy that's kind of. Uh, known as the most superstitious guy in town and the the biggest believer, the right. and, uh, the sucker. And Mar- right? Yeah, and Martin did sh- join lots of churches throughout his life, even after Mormonism. I and mean, the guy joins, I think, Absolutely. the Quakers, and, and he moves around quite a bit joining various churches. And so as much as I think we sometimes pick on the witnesses in, in some of their testimonies with their natural eyes and some of the other things they say – I think, generally speaking, the majority of their testimonies are fairly solid. And, and even though Martin is joining other churches, he seems to hang on to uh, his testimony of the Book of Mormon and of the early restoration. I, I think another incident that happens in Martin's life that tells me that he's not in on it 
is the time he switches the seer stones on Joseph. So the, the two of them are translating uh, the 116 pages. They go out and are throwing stones into the stream, and Joseph walks away to do something else, and Martin looks down and sees this rock in the at the edge of the stream that looks just like the seer stone Joseph's using in the hat. And so when they get back to the house, unbeknownst to Joseph, Martin takes the, the seer stone out of the hat and puts his rock that he just found by the stream, puts it in the hat. <laughs> Joseph comes back, right? This is such a cool story. It is. And and so Joseph comes back, he buries his face into the hat, you know, what? does this for 15 seconds, what the? and then pulls his hat, head out of the hat and goes, Martin, what has happened? Everything is as dark as Egypt. And so for Martin Harris to be in on it, there's no reason to test Joseph. It's a fraud. And so that story alone almost has me wiping Martin off the slate of being uh, being a ploy in this whole thing. It's a great story. But, I mean, we don't know what the rock looked like. That he uh, switched out for. <laughs> Could have looked big old heavy rock, like a brick. Yeah, but how easy is it to see a rock in a hat in a house without incandescent light that's at the bottom of the hat? I mean, Joseph can't see the rock anyway. No, exactly. So if he switched it out, stuck it at the bottom of the hat, Joseph sticks his head in the hat. and He can't even see the rock. Right. Couldn't see the rock. That, that's, that's why it's dark as Egypt. It's a great story if that's how it happened. And I, I would tend to believe that's how it that's, great. that's what he says happened. That's, he yeah. told that story uh, a couple times later in life. Yeah. So, look, guys, yeah. let's move on. Martin Harris is none on it. I, I mean, okay. you know, I don't know how much more you want to beat him up, but anybody that switches the rock out on Joseph, that's a cool guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's something I would have done. Yeah, just, just don't trust him with anything to hold on to anything, right? He'll lose it. Yeah, and, and maybe one last thing is that Martin is is also outside of the church for a while. And again, for for Joseph or the leaders to push him out, Joseph takes a lot of risk in Martin exposing them, and he doesn't do it. And so I just think maybe ending on that note with Martin, he also spends time out of the church, and I think that's also reason to hold up that he's not he's not in on it. Yeah, absolutely. So that leaves us with uh, David Whitmer, and and I think I think David Whitmer to me is the wisest of the three. He's the guy who I think seems much more couched in the way he, he structures his words and the ways in which he says things. He, he seems to be the most stalwart uh, by both the number of testimonies he shares as well as uh, him holding really firm uh, to that testimony. Uh, maybe, maybe David Whitmer did this. Maybe him and Joseph got, uh, you know, got together and uh, made some kind of agreement and they were going to put this forward as a fraud. Uh, thoughts from you guys on maybe how Whitmer um, could be involved or, or is not involved? Well, Whitmer, David Whitmer is one of those guys that I sympathize with as well. Um, as Sidney Rigdon comes into the picture, you can kind of see that David Whitmer's feelings start to become a, l- a little hurt as Joseph, you know, starts to give Sidney Rigdon so much airtime. Um, I know he disagreed and didn't embrace some of the things Joseph was trying to do, uh, like with the development of the doctrine of the priesthood. I know he didn't agree with that. There were several other doctrines that um, he didn't agree with, especially uh, polygamy. Um but what's interesting about him is he he lives a long life. What is he, 70 or something when he dies? 80? Um, I think he's in his 80s. Yeah. I, uh, he's interviewed by uh, a couple of guys from the LDS Church, Joseph F. Smith and, and others, and never denies his testimony of the Book of Mormon. Never. Never denies it. Stays with it his whole life. Even though he feels like Joseph uh, went off track, never denies his testimony of the Book of Mormon. And he's and he's really clear that Joseph's off track, right? He, he writes his pamphlet. Is it like a uh, a witness to all believers in Christ? Is that what it's called? <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> and, and so he does this pamphlet where he is really crystal clear that man, you know, I certainly believe in the Book of Mormon. I certainly believe, you know, the early restorational story. 
but that Joseph Smith is, is a fallen prophet and he's gone off track. And, and again, just like the other two witnesses, David is outside the church. And not only is he outside the church, there's a quote from David in that pamphlet where he says that just as you can count on my testimony, that just as sure as I know the Book of Mormon is true, I know that God has called me to leave the church. Now, he wasn't excommunicated at that point. What he meant was he needed to get his tail end out of town. And I think on some level, he was afraid that by him speaking out against Joseph, on some level, his life was in danger. And that story speaks, I think, a multitude uh, to to David Whitmer not being in on this thing. Hmm. I What I like about him is he was, like you guys pointed out, he was interviewed more than any other witness. Uh, Cowdery died in 1850. Harris died in, what, the 70s, 1870s. And Whitmer died in 1888 or something like that. So he was... He was old. He had given more interviews than anyone else. I, I The only thing that's a little tricky about some of his interviews is at one point, I remember he was interviewed about the uh, looking at the plates, and he tried to clarify because uh, Martin had kind of messed it up with seeing it with their spiritual eyes instead of their natural eyes. And uh, he kind of uh, kind of made the same, uh, kind of fell into the same, I would say, trap in explaining uh, the difference in seeing something physical with their uh, – Spiritualized, spiritualized versus their naturalized. And that's, that's always been a little problematic to me, uh, seeing the plates with your spiritualized. Um, and you look at some of their testimonies and they, they contradict each other when they say, I see it like I see this pen on the table or this bed in the room. <clears throat> but at the same time, I saw it with my spiritualized and they compare, um, Daniel's vision. And, you know, that to me is a, as a, uh, as a member is a little, a little problematic. Yeah, and I agree with you that that is problematic, but I don't think it speaks at all to whether David Whitmer is is working behind the scenes to join Joseph in some kind of fraudulent uh, activity for for writing the Book of Mormon. Sure, right. You're- so he, he so there's some level of maybe these three are duped in terms of of how they're explaining their experience, but at the same time too, while there is a little bit of that on record of of the spiritual eyes, it seems to be to be kind of pale in comparison to the overall testimonies they're giving and and i think too not to get off track but i think too that in some ways these guys have been prepped in their language within scripture and also with the way joseph's teaching that nobody can see god nobody can see the divine with their natural eyes and so if one sees something that one would call a vision one almost has no choice than to say it's with their spiritual eyes and not their natural eyes in other words i don't think that that point the critics make is is a nail in the coffin either again whitmer seems the most rational he's outside the church the whole experience with the all believers in Christ, the pamphlet he gives out, he's not in on it. So now we've knocked out the three witnesses. These are the guys who for 97% of the book of Mormon uh, scribing, they're the ones that are in the room and, and, and contributing to this. So if they're not involved, I mean, the next likely guy is Sidney Rigdon. And I know there's lots of theories out there that Rigdon and, and Joseph were in on this from the beginning. Uh, thoughts from you guys on how that just doesn't work or, or maybe how you think it does. Well, he didn't get involved until, after the publication, right? Right, right. As far as the facts that we know, Sidney Rigdon doesn't join up until like a year after uh, the Book of Mormon is printed. So he was, uh, what, a Baptist preacher, right? He had uh, ties to the Campbellites. He was a yep. member of uh, the same congregation as Parley. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, for him to be in on um, uh, as a co-conspirator of, of bringing forth the Book of Mormon, then it, it, the timing's just not there. Chris, there's some theories out there that talk about the idea that Joseph and Sidney may have have kind of been intertwined years before the the historical you know facts that both sides agree upon 
that before that they might have met. Any your thoughts on kind of any um, historical truth to that, any validity to that, or is that just kind of uh, guesswork by the critics? I don't know. Do you really want to go into? I don't think there's anything real substantial or anything that's been substantiated about Rigdon and and Smith getting together, Rigdon and uh, Joseph getting together. Um, because if they did, there, that brings in a lot of other co-conspirators. According to Parley P. Pratt and Sidney Rigdon, Parley P. Pratt's who introduced the gospel to Sidney. So that means that Parley is in on it. Isaac Morley would be on it because he was a member of Sidney Rigdon's congregation. Edward Partridge would be in on it. Uh, right, there's a whole lot of guys. Because that, almost that entire congregation joins the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there's, a, there's a geographic issue. I mean, these two guys are not living next door to each other. Right. These guys are these guys are states apart. Mm-hmm. And so I know that there's some there's some like sketchy evidence out there. That these two knew each other. And I think it comes from a lot of like the Eber D. Howe affidavits. And these are like way, you know, I know he does the book in not too long after the church is organized. It's in 33. Right. Right. But I'm, I'm thinking that the, the testament for whatever reason, and I, maybe I should just look this up real quick. But for whatever reason, I'm thinking like these witnesses come way years later. Like this is this is long after the fact that these guys are like, yeah, I think I think some guy named Rigdon knew some guy named Joseph and they were together. You know, it just seems really sketchy. Mm-hmm. Abel Chase says that um, Sidney Rigdon was hanging around the Smith's farm for 18 months prior to the publishing of the Book of Mormon. Sidney Rigdon's grandson said that they met before the publishing of the Book of Mormon. Statement of Abel D. Chase is corroborated by a letter from J.H. Gilbert addressed to Mr. Cobb dated Palmyra, 1879. It's way, it's a way late statement. Wow. But he's, That's like Mary Elizabeth yeah. Rawlings Leitner. <laughs> he says, last evening I had about 15 minutes conversation with Mr. Lorenzo Saunders of Reading Hillsdale County, Michigan. He has been dead for about 30 years. He was born south of our village in 1811 and was near a neighbor of the Smith family, knew them well, and was in the habit of visiting the Smith boys. Says he knows that Rigdon was hanging around Smith's for 18 months prior to the publishing of the Mormon Bible. So that's not even a first-hand account. So years later, not a first-hand account, and it's hearsay, right? It's a third-hand witness. Yeah, yeah. It's so it doesn't seem doesn't seem like one that would hold up like in a court of law. It just seems sketchy. And but uh, but what's the other? And one? And then you have Sidney Rigdon's grandson in 1888. Um, says he found. He found Joe Smith, and they had a great many talks together before as they brought out the plates. None of us ever doubted that they got the whole thing up, but Father always maintained that Grandfather helped get up the original Spalding book. At any rate, he got a copy very early and schemed on some way to make it useful. Although the family knew these facts, they refused to talk on the subject while Grandfather lived. In fact, he and they took on a huge disgust at the whole at the whole subject. Well, that's a really that's not a that's not a good. Um, that's not a good. Uh, that's not good evidence at all. You're talking about the grandson and his father, yeah, not wanting to talk about it in front of the grandfather, which was Sydney. That sounds completely made up. Right, and and I look at just put myself in today's culture. Right, I mean we have the internet, we've got access to information everywhere, and there's still like 32 percent of Americans that think Obama was not born in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I mean, I mean, it's just it doesn't take much for rumors to start. It doesn't take much for people to say things that aren't true. And for us to pick up on them years later and say, yeah, that's got to be credible, I think all these kinds of things should be taken with a grain of salt and if there's not solid evidence. And it doesn't sound like this one does either. Yeah, it's true. The thing that uh, thing that I think is pretty cool about Rigdon is, I mean, he was the one that was feathered with Joseph in, in 32, right, in, in Hiram, Ohio. I know that the circumstances on why they were turned feathered isn't important, but the fact that he would go down with them and take a beating like that, and I know, I remember 
was it the next day that he was, I mean, he, uh, it was near death. He felt like he was dying. And I can't imagine if you're going to be part of a fraud, you would be willing to get your butt kicked like that. Give up, man. Yeah. And it even goes beyond that. Um, Clay, having lived about an hour and 20 minutes west of where that happened, I, I had plenty of chances to go to the Hiram, Hiram, Ohio and the Johnson farm. And it was just outside of Kirtland. And this was winter time. I mean, the ground is frozen. I mean, it's it, the ground is hard as a rock there in the winter. And and Sydney gets dragged across the ground. He, like you say, he's bedside for days. And even after that point, he has bouts of being delirious throughout the rest of his life, where he'll he'll be kind of uh, delirious for a day or two here and there. And in those bouts of being delirious, he would he would swear at Joseph. He would threaten Joseph's life. But never did he you know say, "Oh, I'm going to expose you. You're a fraud." There was just never that kind of language. And so even in these moments where he's really vulnerable to saying more than what he should probably say in the, in the party that he's in, he doesn't, he doesn't try to expose Joseph for being a fraud. Right. I mean, in some ways it was almost a torture that he went through. Right. Right. And, yeah. uh, I mean, uh, weaker man would have caved. Or you know, I think that, that was... the, even after getting head banged around the night he was tarred and feathered and all the other things that happened to him, you would have thought that he would have something to say after Joseph proposed marriage to his daughter. I think she was, wasn't she 14? Nancy Rick. Right. Yeah. And we know Sydney was not happy about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did not know that was coming. And when it did, I mean, he was quite upset uh, about Joseph proposing to his daughter. Um, again, if you're Joseph and you're in on it with these guys, you're putting yourself really at risk when you start turning these guys off to you and you start making these guys upset with you and you start giving them reasons to expose you and yet none of them ever do. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and Sydney, Sydney is a good, uh, Sydney's a good, um, possibility for all this. I mean, he's a good orator. He's, he's a smart guy. He's intelligent. He, he knows religion. He knows theology. If anybody, if anybody in this group could design the Book of Mormon on their own, it is Sydney Rigdon. And yet, as we're pointing out, uh, he, he's just not, he's too late to the game. Um, and, and these, there's times where Joseph is obviously making him upset. And he's also kind of, pushed out of the, even though he's a member of the first presidency, he's kind of excluded from the group in the later years. And yet he doesn't do anything to expose Joseph. Yeah. And he also, um, I just remembered, you remember he was involved in section 76, the vision of the celestial kingdom with, with Joseph in in section 76. I mean, there's, if you go to, if you hear the story about how this revelation happens, Joseph will give five or six verses of what he's seeing in the revelation. And then Sidney jumps right in and starts telling you right after Joseph ends talking, Sidney follows it right up with more revelation, tells you what he's seeing. And it goes back and forth for like an hour and a half of these two guys essentially just feeding off each other. If, if Sidney's Sidney can't be duped because he's also sharing in the revelations. So there's no way that he's just being fooled either. Like he is an active participant in DNC section 76. So whatever's going on, he legitimately is sharing the same revelation that Joseph is seeing and talking about in that, in that section or yeah. conspiring with him. Right. So he could be conspiring with him, but we already put that to death. And so now we're showing that he can't be duped as well. Okay. So if you knock Rigdon out, so Rigdon's out of the picture, the three witnesses are gone. What are we left with? Well, we well, could talk about the eight witnesses. So the eight so. witnesses, half of them are Whit- are Whitmers and three of them are Smiths. Do you want to go there, Bill? I just don't think there's any evidence, right? I mean, these guys are, again, these guys are late to the game. They're not scribes for the book. They're not real heavy participants in the church other than Hiram. But Hiram, even Hiram is not an active participant early on. It's not till later on he becomes the patriarch and, and the uh, co-president of the church. I just don't see these guys as having the motives 
or being being glorified enough that they would have a stake in, in carrying this out? Well, only two of them were scribes, right? Martin and Oliver and uh, who else? Emma and uh, Emma's brother, right? Uh, Alva, Alva Hill. Uh, at one point, small, small scribe. So four potential people that would have actually written down the words that they heard from Joseph. And we can knock Emma off the list right now, right? right. She's she's not happy with Joseph, and if I mean she's pretty ticked off the last you know six years of her life with him. Yeah, yeah. I don't think uh, I don't think Emma was in on it. If Emma's not keeping the secret. I mean, she sacrificed her family, right? She has to. She essentially has to leave her mother and her father never to go back because they are so angry with Joseph, and uh, they are already looking down upon him. I just don't see Emma as being a possible person to be in on it. Not at all. Plus, if you guys were going to try to take her anywhere, I'm going to get upset because she's like one of my heroes. Okay, so let's leave Emma out of it. She wasn't okay, part we'll of leave Emma. All right. Yeah, bring him, bring him young might disagree. <laughs> That's true. Well, the other fact is he kicked, uh, I mean, if, you know, when he got sideways with these guys, um, he would either excommunicate them or, or push them out. And that would give every single one of these guys a reason to expose them, and they didn't. Right. Right. That's what's important to me is that, you know, he pushed them out. Right. And and if you're in on it with any of these guys, you're going to go out of your way to keep them happy. And Joseph does the exact opposite of that with almost every single one of these folks. Well, so let's uh, so let's eliminate that he had any co-conspirators in the production of the Book of Mormon. Let's just say he made it up. He invented it. OK, so how's he do that, Chris? Give me give me one of the theories that are out there on how Joseph on his own does it. <clears throat> Well, you know, um, some of the theories like Grant Palmer uh, postulates is that 20 percent of the Book of Mormon is uh, taken from the what is it? The 1769 Oxford edition of the Bible, complete with its uh, mistakes. There's the late war. There is the view of the Hebrews by Ethan Smith. And there's the Spalding manuscript. Right. And so the first thing that comes to mind when you're throwing all those out and there's there's tons of sources. In fact, I, I made a list of, of all the ones that are quoted that critics say Joseph borrowed from, right? We have, as you point out, View of the Hebrews, there's Shakespeare, there's Mercy Otis Warren. Anybody know who that is? Mercy. No. And then there's Gil- <laughs> good old Mercy. And then there's Gilbert Hunt's The Late War, which you mentioned. There's the King James Bible, which you mentioned, Spalding Manuscript, James Adair, author of A History of the American Indians, First and Second Maccabees of the Apocrypha, E.T.A. Hoffman's The Golden Pot, which I know Palmer hits on as a big, mm-hmm. a big uh, source behind it. And, and a- he has a whole chapter on that, The Golden Pot. Yeah. Right. Right. And then Joseph's also borrowing from the sermons of his day. And what to me flies in the face of this is that Lucy Max Smith says Joseph didn't even like to read books. He just he just didn't bother with books. That's not what he did. And I don't think a kid can be a voracious reader of books and their mom not know it. Yeah, especially in that little house. Right, like a two room yeah. house. <laughs> They're all sleeping in the same bed when Moroni comes. <laughs> so how's he do it, guys? Let's hit on a few of these specifically. The Bible, 1769. I mean, he certainly uses the language. Everybody agrees. Uh, my interview with Richard Bushman, Bushman says, look, man, it's, it's in there. 1769 Bible's in there. We have to account for it. And that Bible, that Bible contained the Apocrypha. So he would have right. had access to it. Right. And, and we know from the Smith family, they read from the Bible every night for the most part, right? That's the history we understand, Chris? Yeah. That's, that's at least, that's what Lucy says. Which is a lot more than I'm reading the Bible, and and I'm familiar with a lot of verses. There's verses I could recall out of memory. I know the two of you could recall verses out of your memory. I can only imagine if if the Bible was read in my home every night, the 1769 Oxford edition, read in my home every night, that that vernacular, that language would be how I would frame things. It's how I would speak. 
And so to me, I don't think it's odd to expect Joseph to frame the Book of Mormon narrative using the language or even the book specifically that he's comfortable with. Does that make, does that fit or you guys think that's out of place? No, it makes sense. The KJV, uh, you know, those phrases that he's used to reading all the time, hold me to start throwing those out, right? And they're speaking like that and that's what he's used to. But I do think the apocrypha elements that are found in the Book of Mormon, especially some of the specific ones that are pointed out in First and Second Maccabees, with the word Nephi and the kind of the story of um, Laban being killed, I think those are those are bigger issues to me than uh, than the Bible phrases. Well, don't forget he picked up a he picked up a couple of names from the Captain Kid map. Remember Moroni and Camorra. There's there's two names. The Camorros Islands and Captain mm-hmm. uh, Kid. Yeah, you got it. Um, and so that's another one we can kind of throw in. And I, and I think these are all fair. I want to be I want to be uh, unbiased as much as possible as we look at these, and I want to validate that. Certainly there are things from the 1769 Bible that we, we wouldn't reasonably expect to be in the Book of Mormon, yet they're there. There are these connections, Captain Kidd, and that, that critics could say, hey, there's a plausible connection Joseph has to these words. I agree with that. The, uh, the late war, which you mentioned, Chris, again, it's a cultural language that, that Joseph is using. I don't know that Joseph necessarily is plagiarizing the late war so much as that's the le- cultural language of his day. Ethan Smith is using that language in view of the Hebrews. Uh, as well. And so I think it is also fair to say that Joseph, the critics say Joseph's borrowing themes from these works. Joseph's getting themes from View of the Hebrews. He's getting themes from First and Second Maccabees. Well, like the critics say, he is also picking up the, you know, and it, and it came to pass, which is, you know, the book is peppered throughout the Book of Mormon. Yeah, but without that, you'd only have like 63 pages. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to have a filler, right? I mean, everybody's got to have a filler. But, I, I, but we're missing we're missing the point that even if he had all those those sources available to him, he Which never he did. had them in front of him when he was dictating with his head in the hat. So either he had a right. photographic memory uh, and was able to kind of say these. I mean, he he basically copied full chapters right out of Matthew, Isaiah, Malachi, right into the Book of Mormon. So he would either have to have memorized some of those verses completely. Stick his head in the hat and then, uh, and recite them to Oliver without Oliver knowing. Well, so he either had a Bible that he was hiding from Oliver, or he memorized the those multiple chapters. You mean behind the behind the sheet? Had a Bible that he was hiding yeah. behind the sheet? Those are some or big well, Bibles. Maybe, right? uh, maybe he read the Bible enough that he. I don't think it's implausible that he could have memorized you know multiple chapters of the Bible. That to me, that's not the miracle. That's not the that's not the crazy part about the Book of Mormon. The the amazing thing is that we, he takes all these pieces and then makes this story that doesn't, that doesn't follow any of these other things that we're, that we're talking about. And, and I think too, Chris, Clay, you talk about the sheet between them. I, I think when one has looked at all of the historical data, I think all the scholars agree now that there was no sheet between the scribe and Joseph, that there was a sheet hung up in the doorway to keep other people in the house out as the, as the translation was taking place, but nothing keeping the scribe from seeing Joseph in his head in the hat and him dictating the, the scriptures, we are uh, dictating the plates. Um, we do have historical references that talk about Joseph being at the top of the stairs or at the bottom of the stairs or the plates being out of view. But almost to a T, all of them are saying the whole time his face is buried in the hat. And as you're pointing out, Chris, that's just not, that's just not something that one can, you know, fabricate all of this stuff with their eyes in a dark space uh, to memorize all these things. Yeah, and you know it's relatively new. I think that most Latter Day Saints are coming to the realization that the entire Book of Mormon that we have 
the entire thing was done with Joseph looking at a seer stone inside his hat. Um, so why would he do that? Why would he exclude the light? And, uh, you know, apparently there was some sort of light that emanated from the stone. But if you are trying to, I mean, what was he doing? Putting paper at the bottom of his hat and, and reading it? I, I, you know, there's got to be some explanation here that. And these can't be very bright rooms, right? I mean, you got a little tiny window in a log cabin. There's no incandescent lights. Mm-hmm. You might have a candle lit. And you've got your face buried in a hat. In my mind, it's going to be literally as dark as Egypt in that thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows how dark Egypt was, but yeah, it must have been pretty dark. So you're asking Joseph to kind of just pull this stuff out of his mind. And, and as you two point, as you point out as well, Chris, it's one thing to say Joseph borrowed from the Bible. He borrowed from the late war. He borrowed from view of the Hebrews. Uh, I want to get on, you know, the balding manuscript here in a second and talk about that as well. But as you, as you make the point of, it's one thing to borrow from all those things. It's another thing to borrow from those things and then add in a coherent dating system, a coherent geography, both in directions people are going, as well as a, the place the names. Politics, that, uh, the money system. Oh, the yeah, geography. You know, prophe- the prophecies that are spoken of 42 chapters earlier and then come true later on in the book. The characters that are mentioned and then revisited 36 chapters later in the book, the storyline development, how the book weaves in and out and stays true to its purpose, to do all that while plagiarizing 10 different sources or three different sources or two different sources seems like a, a task that's beyond any of, any of us. I mean, I consider myself a smart guy. I know the two of you, um, you know, we, all three of us have had conversations. I know the two of you are smart guys. I don't think the three of us together could could make this book if we had all the time in the world to do it. Certainly not without a whiteboard and plenty of markers, you know, laying it out. And and a chance once we dictated some of it to go back and fix it. Yeah. Which which while Joseph, you know, while the while the manuscript certainly has its grammatical errors, uh, I think there's only one name correction in the book where they said uh, King Benjamin and then changed it later to King Mosiah. When you look at the the magnitude of that book and the corrections, the the real serious corrections that were made. It's minuscule. I mean, they, they essentially put out a work that is, um, as far as the storyline goes, it's intact from the moment it put, it's put on paper. And then how uh, Ether folds back into the story. I mean, right. it's, it's right. incredible. It is. It is. Let's, uh, let's hit on for a moment the um, Spalding manuscript. If I remember the story right, there is this one manuscript. It's found, but it's unconnected to, to the Book of Mormon story. It, it, it's just no way at all is it connected uh, Solomon Spalding is rumored to have written more than one manuscript. There's believed to be a second one. Finally, years later, some guy finds it in a, in a chest or something. And it's, I think it's called manuscript found. And so here's the second manuscript. And all of a sudden we're going to have the answers to whether the book of Mormon's there. And, and then it comes forward and it seems completely unrelated as well. Um, the only, I guess the only hypothesis out there is that there's a third manuscript, but is there any evidence for that? No, I think that's just a theory. I don't think there's any any evidence that there's a, a third manuscript. Isn't that what someone postulated? Right. And I think the only, the only little tidbit into that that we have is that when the, uh, the book Mormonism Unveiled comes out, there's a few affidavits from Spalding's neighbors, I believe, where after they're prepped by Eber D. Howe, they are saying, yeah, I think there's some similarities. I think there was a guy named Nephi in, in his, in the Spalding manuscript. And so we have kind of that conversation going on, but it seems really weak. Are you are you talking about the Hurlbut affidavits? Right. Yeah, the Hurlbut. Eber D. Howe is the the author. Philastrius Hurlbut is the guy who who goes around collecting these affidavits, and and he goes to the neighbors of Spalding, and 
and some of these neighbors are saying, yeah, Nephi, <laughs> Lehi, yeah, that was in there, you know, and, and I just don't, I don't think that evidence is really that strong. I think most of even the critics, uh, pretty much stay away from the Spalding manuscript, uh, idea. That's a rather unfortunate last name, isn't it? Hurlbutt? Hurlbutt. Like, yeah, he gets, yeah. He's made fun of us. You can, you can see why he was bitter. Yeah, you can see why he was angry and bitter and wanting to, you know, put other people down. Yeah. So on the Spalding manuscript, again, there's a first one, there's a second one finally found, it's not it. Some of the critics say there's gotta be a third manuscript out there, but I think that's just a hope and a prayer and, and just a little bit of, of evidence in terms of the, uh, the Eber D. Howe book and the Hurlbut affidavits. Um, but even if Joseph has the Spalding manuscript and he's using it, right, the only way to make this work is if he's going home at night memorizing 20 pages or so of it at a time and then going in and recanting the thing uh, to the scribe verbatim, right? I and mean, that's, that's the only way that this works. Yeah, but if he was doing that, wouldn't you see other evidence in that after the Book of Mormon's published? Wouldn't you see his genius, his brilliance, his, uh, his, uh, whatever, what, whatever IQ he must have had to be able to do this? Wouldn't you have seen that in his other, he seemed like he would have been able to run a bank and a store and, uh, you know, keep the church together and things like that. Right, right. And I think another evidence that goes against this idea of him plagiarizing other sources is that once the Book of Mormon's done, that's over with. And Joseph creates other works, right? We've got the Book of uh, Abraham. We've got the Book of uh, Moses. We've got Revelations received in the Doctrine of Covenants. We'd almost have to find other sources that these things are all based on because Joseph's creative ability to dictate what he is telling others is the Word of God continues beyond the Book of Mormon where he's supposedly plagiarizing these sources. So his creative ability continues past these sources you almost have to let go of that idea, don't you? Yeah, yeah, you do. Mm-hmm. D- does that make? Am I making sense? I can stop here for a second. Does that make sense? What I just said? Yeah, that it, I'm. I don't really like that mainly because the Book of Abraham. Well, the Book of Abraham has its problems, but we don't have any text that we can blame Joseph for basing that book on. He is creating it literally out of thin air, and so there is no source for it. the The Book of Moses, he's creating some of that storyline out of thin air. He's, he doesn't have the late war to use this time. He doesn't have the view of the Hebrews to use this time. There is no other source that we can blame these on. And so somehow beyond plagiarizing the sources, Joseph's creative ability continues on. But he has, he has Genesis as a template for Moses. Sure, but he adds other stories to it. So you're saying, Bill, that his ability to be creative past the Book of Mormon is there or is not there? I'm saying that... With the Book of Mormon, you can blame Joseph plagiarizing sources. That Maybe that's his skill set, that he is good at plagiarizing things. Okay. But when he moves beyond the Book of Mormon, you can no longer say he's plagiarizing, and yet he's still coming up with very creative, very um, dynamic uh, scriptures or, or, or narratives that he's saying God gave him that no longer have any kind of source material to blame it on. Okay. I'll tell you another thing about Joseph compared to the Spalding manuscript is that he sure came up with a lot better names. Uh, what it was 150, 160 unique names. And I remember reading the Spalding manuscript. Um, uh, they didn't really, uh, their names were pretty funny. If I remember, there was a guy named Hadokum. He was the king of Scrota or Scota, something like that. Scrota. <laughs> it was. <laughs> King of, I, I can't remember. I think it was Scioda or Scrotia or something like that. And you, you, have you guys, you guys had to have picked up on some of these names, right? I mean, I've never forgot them. In fact, I considered naming some of my children some of these names. <laughs> I'd be really careful. Was, you want that kid to like you, right? <laughs> there was Trojanus. Do you remember that? 
Trojanus? Tro- 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 no. no. He was the first mate on the ship. He got to be the preacher or whatever. He was a, it, he was a seaman? Scrodanus was a seaman? <laughs> no. Trojanus. Tro- Tro- I guess it's Trojanus. Trojanus. He was the he was the first mate. I like it when you say it slower, Chris. <laughs> he was the minister. So you, you got to give Solomon Spalding a couple of a couple of points for coming up with creative names. Um, but the but the names sound like they're very different than what the Book of Mormon uses. Yeah, I don't think those names are in the Book of Mormon. Not that I remember. Right. So the two the two manuscripts we do have from Spalding, it's a completely different way of making names. It's not even the same kind. Of, it's not like they even come from the same country or something. It's like. Like a completely different word use, right? Yeah, they all sound in, in the Spalding manuscript. They all sound Roman or, you know, like a Latin base. Gotcha. And and whereas in the Book of Mormon, we certainly see whether you want to agree that there's Hebrewisms there or not, they certainly have that kind of plausibility to them. That there is what looks like Hebrew type uh, type of spellings and pronunciations to those those names. Even the very beginning of the Book of Mormon, where you have uh, Sam. Um, and Nephi and Lehi, which sound kind of Egyptian, which, which Nephi tells you he's got this Egyptian background. And then Laman and Lemuel, uh, and Sariah, their mother, who have this very Hebrew kind of name to them. It, it, it just seems like they're drawing from different places. While we're talking too about different books, uh, Chris, you and I were talking about View of the Hebrews a couple weeks ago, and you had said that you tried, you've tried to read that thing several times and you can't even, you just couldn't get through it. Oh man, I love to read. I read multiple books at a time and that one. That one just that one just killed me. I only got a few pages into it, and I just, you know, I tried everything I could do: cold Pepsi, you know, comfy chair, <laughs> uh, fan blowing on me. And I, man, that's one of the only books. I mean, I, I can't remember not being able to get more than a few pages into a book, except for that one. And, and I feel the same way you do, and I've had the same experience. I almost wonder if Mark Twain had started with View of the Hebrews, if he never would have called the Book of Mormon chloroform and print. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he might have had a more charitable view of the Book of Mormon, huh? Right, right. And so I think for, for the listeners, I mean, I dare you, try to read the view of the Hebrews. It's, it, I mean, you think the Book of Mormon puts you to sleep? Like Chris said, you're gonna get, you'll get to like page three and you're just going to put it down. You can't the do Book it. The Book of Mormon's an exciting novel compared, compared to that. Right, right. It's dynamic, right? It's like Star Wars. Mar- Moroni should win a, uh, you know, a Newbery Award winner or something. <laughs> you know, B.H. Roberts, Robert's probably the only guy that ever read it, right? To summarize it for everybody. Remember he summarized I feel it. sorry for him. I think he was ordered by the first presidency too. <laughs> Listen, we hereby punish you to read the view of the Hebrews. But he he makes the good points, man, on on the connection. He makes some really good. I mean, he's the one that summarized it and said the connections are, you know, the Israelite origin, the American Indians, uh, destruction of Jerusalem, mention of metal plates, right? The future gathering of Israel, restoration of ten tribes. I mean, he does even the. Hebrews uh, has uh, material from Isaiah, right? Whole chapters by Isaiah, and they're just like Book of Mormon. But, but they're different chapters than the Book of Mormon uses. Completely different chapters. It, it quotes several chapters from Isaiah, but they're they're completely different chapters than what the Book of Mormon uses. Yeah, uh, and it is interesting. I think all three of us would admit. I mean, there are certainly common themes in view of the Hebrews as well as the Book of Mormon. I just think, as Chris pointed out earlier, to make a, a dating system, a geography, directions, coherent name places, uh, follow-up prophecy, characters, storyline development, it's not it's not like he's just recopying View of the Hebrews. It's The Book of Mormon really, the story it's, that's in those pages really stands on its own two feet away from any of these sources that we could claim Joseph's borrowing from. Okay, so, but let's let's suppose that he had, Joseph had a copy of View of the Hebrews, right? 
Right, and and he doesn't like to read those, as mom says. But yes, let's just but assume maybe for somebody a else he has a view of the, the Hebrews. Read it. Let's say Hiram read it, okay. kind of summarized it for him. Even though there's and no that evidence. may have just been a jumping off point. <laughs> Hiram, you read this thing. <laughs> <laughs> no! So you're taking a picture of the Smiths after a long day about chopping wood and digging wells and farming. They come in at night and they sit down and review the Hebrews together. And that, <laughs> that's for entertainment. It's like the Book of Mammon. About as bad as that one. <laughs> that guy doesn't do your point. The Book of Mammon. Oh, that's good. That's good stuff. Listen to it, then man, shoot. That's a bad. But but even if he reads the book, even if he knows the book, even if he understands the themes and he borrows four or five of them, seven of them, twelve of them. He still has to create an entire story on his own, even with those. No, I, and I don't think, yeah, I, I don't see any direct connection, but I see a jumping off point, a catalyst, right? But that's not, but that doesn't, but that doesn't tell me that it's a fraud. That doesn't say plagiarize, plagiarism. It just tells me a jumping off point, curiosity, inspiration. The question, I guess, to the, to both the critic and the faithful believer is, does reading view of the Hebrews and for some reason, that book sticking in your mind is being exciting, that you want to copy from it. Uh, does that lend any plausibility to Joseph creating the Book of Mormon based on that book? And, and I agree, there's common themes there. I'm not arguing that at all. I just, I just see the two books as completely different, even with those common themes. Yeah, going back to the Spalding manuscript, I mean, the only common theme is that a ship arrives in America that's full of Romans, they intermarry with the Indians. Why do you think the reorgs were so interested in printing uh, the manuscript story, the Spalding, in 1885? Why were they so interested in getting that out there? Because I think once one reads it, one realizes the connection isn't as strong as the critics say. So they did it to help push the book format? Yeah. In my mind, right? You're talking about the reorganized church, right? They're the ones that did that, right? right? Yeah, I, I see them still as, at that time wanting to hold the Book of Mormon up as scripture. And I think for them to, you know, to publish the Spalding manuscript, the manuscript found the second one, uh, I think it just, it, I think when one reads View of the Hebrews, when one reads the Spalding manuscript, one is less likely to draw that connection than if one just sees the numbered six or seven parallels between the two works or three works. <laughs> Setting kind of all of those, those sources aside that Joseph is perhaps borrowing from, Realizing that the Book of Mormon really is something different, even with all these similarities, it really is something different. It really has still creative genius within it that's outside of plagiarism. Um, that would lead to this kind of next idea, which is that Joseph is a genius, that he's just dictating the book himself, that he, he puts his head into a hat and, and he's just that darn intelligent that he can just wing a story over the course of a few months without, with making so few mistakes in the dictation of that story that he just uh, he just puts out this incredible dynamic work with uh, with just his his mind while he buries his face in a hat does does Joseph Smith's family think that he's that smart i mean let me let me tell you a little story and i'm not doing this to be prideful to the listeners or to be boastful but I, again i think i'm a smart guy i know chris i know you're a brilliant guy Ooh. i know clay i know you're a brilliant guy <laughs> uh, yeah hey 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 all right hey but here's my point though so being what's nine smart times nine uh, 87.3. So, so my point being though, is that my wife, while she always tries to like, be like, Hey, you're not as smart as you think you are. Right. My wife knows that I'm somewhat intelligent. Your spouses know that you're somewhat intelligent. 
And yet Emma seems to think Joseph's not that bright, right? I mean, there's several quotes from Emma where she said, look, my husband's just not capable of this. He's just not a bright guy. Yeah, you remember the story where he's translating <clears throat> and she's scribing for him and uh, he gets to the part where there's a wall around Jerusalem and he stops and he asks her if that's true. And she tells him, yeah, there was a wall around Jerusalem. So then he goes back. Right. He obviously wasn't. So he's oblivious. Yeah, obviously he wasn't familiar with walls being around cities where his wife was. So she was obviously much more well-read and educated than he was. Which is another testimony that he didn't read a lot of books. That he, he wasn't, a, you know, he might have been s smart in some ways, but he wasn't very educated. Um, Emma also makes the comment that he couldn't really write out a well-written sentence. He, he doesn't really have the ability to spell right. He doesn't really have the ability to structure his sentences properly. It just seems to indicate that everyone around him doesn't really think he's like this brilliant genius. And, and I don't – generally when you bump into a genius and you talk to a genius for – for, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you know, you pick out, man, this guy's smart. This guy, this guy, you know, got it upstairs. And it doesn't feel like anybody's claiming that of Joseph and all their interactions with him. You know, the other thing that has always struck me about the Book of Mormon is after Joseph writes it, he doesn't do what most people would do if they had just written a book. He doesn't um, promote it. He doesn't, you know, use it extensively. He doesn't, you know, say to the world, look what I did. Um, it's almost like he, loses a lot of interest and moves on. I mean, the Book of Mormon isn't used that extensively right. by him. Yeah, all of his early sermons, all of his early sermons, the, he, he's rarely using it. He's, he's pulling from the New Testament. He's pulling from the Old Testament. He's working on these other works, the Book of Abraham, Book of Moses. He rarely uses the Book of Mormon. And as you point out, what author doesn't you know stand on a soapbox and brag about their work when they publish something? Yeah, yeah, that's always, that's always struck me as an odd thing. William McClellan, I have it pulled up here on... Uh online that uh, Joseph attended his school during the winter of 1834. He said that he had a very strong mind. He had an incredible memory. He liked to study principles of science. Uh, this, was, this was him as an adult. This would have been, you know, five, six years after he had translated the book. So, you know, maybe he took the learning after, after the McClellan. I think that plays out. That's when he kind of really hit his stride with DMC and, and uh, Book of Abraham. With his creativity. I hear you, and I think that that, in a sense, is contradicting what I'm saying, but I also think the, the listener needs to have the caveat thrown in that once the church is organized, Joseph is spending a whole lot of energy, time, and resources trying to further his education, trying to, in a, in a sense, become, become a more intelligent person than, than where he's at. You know, he's, he's getting people to come in and teach Hebrew. He's, he's working with other languages. He's having people come in and talk about other languages. He, he just seems to be applying himself in lots of different fields, trying to essentially expand himself. And, and so for McClellan, this may be kind of an after the fact of, of him being, uh, Joseph being much more developed by the Holy Ghost as well as expanding himself into all these fields of education. Okay. So again, I, val I totally validate that. And, and so there's a source that points to Joseph being perhaps a very intelligent, very good memory, very wise guy. I, I just I just wonder, for me, there's a disconnect between young Joseph and Emma and others and how they, they speak of his intelligence and his ability versus that McClellan account. And I'm asking myself, what changed in between? Okay. Um, another variation, well, we should add too, the idea of Joseph being a genius and writing the Book of Mormon himself there's been some word print analysis studies done, and, and these studies, 
they're certainly criticized because I think the major one was done at BYU, and of course BYU is going to be biased. But there's been some independent ones too, Bill. Yeah, and the BYU one really, when people look at the actual data and the control issues, I don't think they really see any problems other than the place that, that the study took place took place at. And so when one looks at these word print analysis, and as you're saying, Chris, there's been other ones done. I think the general consensus among all of these is that the wording in the Book of Mormon is indicates that the author of that book is a different person than Joseph Smith based on the word usage that Joseph Smith used. And as you were talking about earlier today, Chris, as we were kind of prepping for this, those studies also show that the Book of Mormon has multiple authors and that those multiple authors end and start in some of these studies where the actual author of the Book of Mormon ends and starts. Yeah, you're saying like um, Mosiah sounds different than Alma, and Alma sounds different than Moroni, right? Right, that every time there's a there's a scribe in the Book of Mormon, so right, Nephi is writing the first record, then his brother Jacob, then you've got uh, Mormon kind of taking out the middle of the book, and then you've got Moroni at the end, that these these authors are showing up in these word print analysis as different from each other, and that Joseph is like the least likely guy in his word usage to to be the author of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, those studies are fascinating. They are. Um, another variation of this idea is that Joseph is an idiot savant. I mean, I, I used to watch my mom used to watch Phil Donahue when I was a kid, and and Phil would have these you know bring these kids on stage who could hear a song played and they could just play the piano and hit every key perfectly. But right, I mean. There's just there's just no room here really to see Joseph as having that kind of ability. Um, when you look at being an idiot savant, and I, and I don't use that term as a derogatory term, but being a savant brings brings along with it some uh, social cues that one doesn't really respond well to. And Joseph seems to be you know socially right in with the rest of the group that he's not he's not behind in any way, and and it just doesn't seem to match that kind of phenomenon. No, but what it does seem to match is that, you know, there's several um, statements about him being a storyteller um, and that he would, you know, regale his family with tales of uh, life in America. Um, but the Book of Mormon seems to be a much grander and complex story than a boy telling stories. You know what I mean? Right, right. That. That to sit in front of your fireplace and tell your family a story for 45 minutes before you go to bed is something really completely different than day after day putting your face in a hat and recounting 20 pages a day for months on mm-hmm. end. Yeah. So, and then the last, I think the last variation of this kind of idea of Joseph on his own and being a genius is this, uh, this idea of having photographic memory. Uh, I think you guys are familiar. There's, there's like this disorder out there. I don't call it a disorder. It's just like, um, anomaly that some people are born with where no matter what every memory of every day is locked in their brain and they've taken these people and taken them aside and and said hey you know tell me about june 7th 1982 and the person can tell you what the newspaper said the person can tell you what we ran across the news report the person can tell you what the weather was I mean, they can just recount every single detail of that day and and yet as you pointed out earlier chris if this is joseph's gift this would have really come in handy in other places in his life, and it doesn't seem like this is something that really carries over beyond beyond what the critics would say is his imaginative stories. Yeah, and you would have thought that his mother would have said something about it. She would have seen signs of this early in his life, or you know, certainly by the time he was a teenager. She talks about an Emma later yeah. on. 
Yeah. And she talks about him being a, con- a contemplative child uh, or some of the other things she says. Um, um, he wasn't prone to books. In the four first vision accounts would all be the same. Yeah. <laughs> right? right. So if he's got a photographic memory, then then there's there's no changes in the story. The story can be told the exact same way every time. <laughs> kind of wrapping up, I mean, we've kind of hit on it. We've, we've taken apart the three witnesses. We've talked about Sidney Rigdon. We've talked about all these sources that Joseph Smith may have borrowed from or plagiarized. We've talked about Joseph being able to kind of do this on his own. And, and I think at the end of the day, I mean, I don't know that there's really any kind of coherent story you can come up with if you pick and borrow and, and steal from each of these ideas that really would hold together really well. And it almost seems like uh, what would come off as the most plausible, reasonable explanation for me. And I'm not saying that the Book of Mormon being divine is, is you know, fits perfectly for me. But man, when I look at all this mess, it just seems like it's the it's the easiest conclusion for me to make is just to to believe that this is some kind of divine thing that this isn't just a, a made up uh, fraudulent story that Joseph created with or without help. Yeah, it looks like the evidence that the critics um, point out as evidence for the Book of Mormon not being true is still lacking. Um, it's just the evidence just doesn't bear out the fact that it's a fraud in my mind. Clay, any last thoughts from you? I agree with you guys. I like the idea of looking at the book as something that, um, you know, the, the burden of proof is on those who say it's, it's false. I mean, they need to uh, present the evidence of uh, purported fraud over, over a conspiracy there. You know, I know we don't, we're not going to get into the historicity of the Book of Mormon, but, but um, as far as... Uh, um, if there were actually Nephites and Lamanites, and I, and um, and I think what's neat about the Book of Mormon is is what's inside it, right? What how we how us how we've been affected by the teachings that are found in the Book of Mormon, and and uh, and what it's caused us to do in our lives and, and make changes and live a better life because of what's contained in inside it. Right. You know, something else right. yeah. I wanted to add is. Some of the some of the most beautiful parts of the Book of Mormon seem unexplainable to me, um, based on some of the other things we were talking about. Joseph being, uh, you know, having a great memory or whatever. You know, you read a, a verse like Ether twelve twenty seven, or the theology and doctrine found in Moroni ten and Moroni seven, Alma thirty six, Second uh, Nephi. What is it? Second Nephi chapter thirty one. Yeah, Alma five, Alma thirty two. Um... You have all of that. It's just, it's, there's a lot of really deep spiritual nourishment, spiritual teaching in those, in those pages. It is a life changer and it's, it's something that isn't found in view of the Hebrews. It's something that's not found in the, the Spalding manuscripts that we have. It, there's no reason to believe that Spalding creates a third manuscript that all of a sudden is a spiritual religious ge- work of genius when his other two works were not. Um, it, it isn't found in the late war. It's not, it's not found in these other works. And so, you know, you can try to say Joseph's borrowing from the sermons of his day, but there's just something, there's something dynamic about the Book of Mormon that again, it just stands on its own two feet. I guess I'd finish off you guys by, by challenging, you know, as all the listeners listen to this and as this, as this episode gets, it's, uh, gets kind of tallied about, uh, I wonder if, if I could throw out the challenge for any critic of the church, present a coherent narrative of how this thing's a fraud, like, like, Figure out all the pieces. Show me, 
show me how Oliver Cowdery, whether he was duped or whether he was, whether he was in on it. Uh, same with Whitmer, same with, uh, Martin, uh, Harris, same with Sidney Rigdon. Make all those pieces fit. Show me how Joseph is a fraud and how that works over in all the experiences that others have with him in bringing the restoration about. And at the end of the day, I just think that that is so full of holes and so full of, uh, problems to try and do that, that one almost comes away saying, you know what, once I dig into it, it's just as likely that Joseph's telling the truth on the book and, and to just take it at face value. Um, and so I hope that listeners might, uh, might realize that, that there's still a lot of room to have faith, uh, in the Book of Mormon as, uh, as a divine work of God. Let's wrap up because I want to make, I want to drive home this point. Uh, Chris, you recently shared with me an interaction you had with somebody and, and I wondered if you might just to end the program, share that because what I want the listeners to walk away with is knowing that in the midst of this entire mess, there, there really is so much room for faith and, and I'll just let you kind of, um, share as much of that as you'd like to. Well, just, just briefly, um, I had a chance to interact with someone who was in really a lot of distress about her testimony and believing that it was all, that Mormonism was not what it purported to be. And, she was, uh, losing her family, um, losing her children. It was, she was in the, the, the dark night of the soul as you talk about it, Bill. And it was amazing in that the first thing that she said was the Book of Mormon fraud. It's a fake. It's not, it's not real. And immediately it, sometimes as we're, as we're all struggling, um, and working through some of the messy issues with the church, we forget it's some of the some of the bright spots and some of the brilliance and some of the light that shines through. And as we started to talk about the Book of Mormon, um, uh, I felt like as we talked about the different things that she thought were absolute uh, evidences that it was false, it seemed like we were able to kind of strip those away a little bit. And as you were saying earlier, Bill or Clay. Um, there really wasn't a lot of evidence left that's solid evidence that the Book of Mormon is false. In fact, it seems like there's more evidence for a, a divine uh, variable or there's something there that's just unexplainable. And personally, when I read the Book of Mormon, I, I don't see there's just more to it than what the critics like to throw at it. Um, I see, I see divinity in it. I, it makes me feel good when I read it. And I see something brilliant and genius in it that is just not explained by some of these things we talked about tonight. Chris and Clay, uh, thank you to both of you for, for taking some time out of your night to, to spend to discuss this. I think the listeners will get a lot of worth out of this. I think these are all things that are running around in our minds as bits and pieces that are unconnected. And for us to kind of sit down tonight and to like rehash all of these in one episode, I think it becomes more clear to the listener that this this isn't cut and dry either way and this really is a matter of faith and that there's a lot of reason to to lead with faith and to hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So thank you both uh, tonight for taking out some time to, to spend with us.